Okay, let me clarify something. Uh, the singles of regular services. It is not intended that everybody else don't come. This is for singles. One of the things that we have felt the need to do and we have made use of the existing schedule that we have is if you're not single but you're part of the church, then you need to know about the lives of singles. And it's very important that, you know, if we're going to be a church and we're going to care for each other biblically, then we really can't live these lives that, that kind of, well, I'm in this season of life and I don't need to know anything about anybody else. Well, no, when you're the church, you may find out that you're the thumb connected to a single person. And you need to know their life. They're in covenant group with you. You're caring for them. They're caring for you. And so, as you know, we did the couples day uh, a couple of months ago or a month and a half ago. Uh, that was not a day for singles not to come. That was a day for singles to come learn the life of a couple and, and a family and how to relate to them, how to walk with those folks and how to prepare themselves for that day as well. And the reality is many of us in this room who are married right now will perhaps be facing singleness in our future through a variety of circumstances that can and does often occur in our society. And so it will be uh, good for all of us to hear what is a person who's walking through singleness facing in their life and how can I be an encouragement and a strength for them. So please don't, don't hear that weekend as a, a time to be off. That's a time for the church to be here together. If you're single, though, we want to ask you to adjust your schedule so that you're going to be in all the meetings over the weekend. Nine o'clock next Sunday, Saturday morning, the service next Saturday morning. And then the next day is not a repeat of the Saturday service. It is a different message with a different goal in mind to serve you. So it's kind of a conference weekend of us making use of the building space that we have and the meetings that we have available to us. So please join us for the entire weekend if you're single. And, and certainly do invite other singles who you know who are walking through elements of singleness. It is a challenge uniquely. That's why we do this. There's unique challenges to walking out your life as a single person. And we want to address those. And, and hopefully the Lord will give us grace to encourage you and help you in those steps that you're taking right now. Uh, Peter mentioned just briefly, and for those of you that were here last week, you got a chance to hear just what an amazing faith-filled response has come from you all and all of us who are part of the church in preparing us to, to rebuild. Uh, it is simply unbelievable. Um, when I, I had the, the joy, we were blessed to be with the other pastors from Sovereign Grace the past weekend. That's why we were not here. And... Um, just to, to, to see the look on their face when they would hear all that God is doing here and the amazement of the amount of faithful giving and sacrificial giving that is being uh, given by you. It was, it was quite a testimony and very faith-building for these folks as well to hear. But if you weren't here last week and you didn't get a chance to hear just where we are, um, we have are anticipating from the cards that are, have been turned in. I think there's 215 cards that have been turned in to this point, And obviously we want all to participate, so we're still not, not done collecting cards. But so far, what has been promised and pledged to, for this month alone, just to be received in April, the one-time giving dynamic that we had asked, is, is over $650,000. That is staggering. That is unbelievable. And then the giving that will continue over the next 12 months on a monthly basis is over $50,000 a month to be given on a monthly basis. 
and so you know we are we are very much in the final stages. We've been busy this past week, and we'll be busy again this week with the bank in in closing some of the elements. Um, they have looked at our pledge numbers, and based on pledge numbers, are very much confident you guys are going to be able to close the gap in your building project. And so we're drafting up the final elements of our agreement with the bank, and that should be taken care of this week. And then uh, shortly thereafter that, we anticipate signing our agreement with the general contractor. So, so we are awful close to uh, pulling the trigger here and seeing things begin to happen rather quickly. Uh, but that really has been made possible by every one of you who has said, I will take a step of faith. And, you know, we've been walking through this faith series and a little phrase that has stuck in my head that, uh, you know, faith lives right next door to crazy. You do stuff that just looks crazy sometimes. And I've got to tell you, some of you people look crazy. <laughs> I'll look at your giving and it's like, this, this, this guy's crazy. <laughs> but hey, man, what God-glorifying stuff to be doing things that are crazy for the glory of God. That's what the kingdom should look like. So you guys are to be wonderfully commended and thanked. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Bill Treby for his incredible job last week. Yeah. He, uh, you know, I've, I've heard different men who preach and help others preach talk about the amount of time that it takes on a weekly basis to prepare a message. Uh, John MacArthur, who's been preaching for many, many years, many of you would know who John is, uh, he says it takes him anywhere from 15 to 20 hours per week to put together a message. And this is a guy who preaches multiple times a week for many, many years. And so I'm aware of the incredible sacrifice that, that Bill took on to add to his schedule and responsibilities uh, preparation that probably exceeded that to be able to speak to us. And, and can I tell you this just about Bill and Nancy? What was so exciting, and I even talked to Bill before his message and just listened to his heart, was you know, Bill preached a message that was very much a biblical admonition to us, but one that would also be an admonition from his own life. Bill and Nancy live what he pre- preached on last week. They, live, they have lived, as long as I have known them, a life of service, a life toward the church that has put the church and relationships in the church as a priority. Um, just the other day, my, my, my parents live right near Bill and Nancy, and uh, they had recently moved from a house that was just around the corner to another closer house as well. And as Gene and I were driving down the street and we passed Bill and Nancy's old house, both of us kind of went, aww. And the reason we did that is because we have many memories in their house. We have many memories in every house they have owned. And, and that is true because they walk in the gift of hospitality and open their lives to so many folks. And I, I, I could take the whole service just telling you people that I've known who have been significantly affected by their hospitality. So I appreciate that not only did you hear an excellent message last week, but you, you heard it from a man who lives what you heard. And, and can I add one more admonishment to all the men here? You know, what I appreciate about the ability to even ask Bill to do the message last week is, is because Bill has always been a man who has not bought into the idea that studying doctrine, studying the Word of God is the job of pastors. He has seen it as a job of a Christian. And, uh, and I could have... Uh, equally as deep of a theological discussion with Bill as I could have with anybody in this room because he has devoted his life to study and to knowing truth and he has not uh, 
left that to the specialists or to the professionals. And I, I want to encourage all of us here, particularly the men that are here, that, that's the way Christianity should look. I, I don't assume that everybody here would have the level of communicating gifting that Bill has. Bill has an ability to communicate that. That would not be true for everyone, and you shouldn't feel awkward about that. But you ought to have stuff in you, even if you can't communicate it, it ought to be in you. And the day when your covenant group leader turns to you and says, Hey, look, I can't be here next week. Could you fill in for me? You should never say, Oh, no, I don't know, I don't know if I can handle that. Uh, well, he's not asking you to write a systematic theology book. He's just asking you to fill in. But guys, you know what I'm talking about. Many of you guys respond to those requests with, oh, I don't know. That should not be the response of a man who's following hard after God. Uh, you should know truth, and you should be able to communicate it at some level. It may not be exactly what somebody else would do, but that's fine. God used Bill uniquely to communicate things, and we heard it in a way that benefited us. Uh, that was the best way for us to hear it, through his abilities and gifting. So, Bill, Nancy, thank you guys for the gift you are to us in so many ways. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our series on faith. And uh, I got a call or an email from somebody who said, just was thanking us for the, the teaching on faith and the timing of it. And it was uniquely that it was being well received. And I, and I think we can all relate to this. You know, thanks for this series. It, it really is helpful. And, you know, I'm so glad I'm in a place where I can receive it. I'm not going through a crisis of faith right now. And it's made me able to receive this in a way that sometimes when I've looked back on when I have gone through a crisis of faith, it's kind of like I'm impenetrable, you know? You know, sometimes you go through a crisis of faith and we stiffen up and we get hard. And we don't want to hear the truth. And we don't want to be encouraged. And we don't want to leave room for anybody to say anything of the truth to us. Because we're just wrestling through our own issues. But this is, this is, perhaps that's not where we are. Perhaps we're not in a crisis of faith right now. But this is ammunition for that day. This is preparing us to see in the scriptures the strategic purpose of God. How does God go about strengthening our faith and, and really the letter to in Hebrews is it is an exercise in how God goes about strengthening our faith. So I think we could probably call this series Strategies for Strengthening Faith. That's really what Hebrews is, is about. Turn to Hebrews chapter six with me. We're gonna spend most of the time in these passages today. And if you haven't been here for the whole series and you'd like to get that, it is available through the book nook. This is, this is week number six, maybe week number seven, week number seven I think, actually, um, in the series. And so if you'd like to review or get certain elements of it, you're welcome to pursue that through the book nook. Here is this strategy highlighted again and again and again throughout this book. Remember the Hebrews, what's going on in their life. They are at a point of, of their faith is being tested. And there's a question about how they're going to endure. And there's a concern here, and the writer of Hebrews is concerned. Will your faith endure? Are you on the verge of failing faith? And so what's being said is being said with the strategy of bolstering faith that's beginning to sag in places. And it's producing an effect in people's lives. And I know that there's a reality here that this is the great thing about the Bible. It's not apologizing for the reality that any of us, as followers of Christ, could find ourselves in a place where our faith is sagging. It's just, it's gotten weakened. 
And, you know, I hope, you know, Covenant Group is a great setting for this. I hope you're finding yourself amongst believers that, are, that aren't just pre- presenting some brochure about Christianity. You know, here's the brochure, you know, always a smile, never stumbling, never any difficulty, and then making you feel bad like you lack faith and you've got a problem if you're actually struggling in an area. But when you read the Bible, you find people all over the place are having a day of trial, a day of struggle, a day when they actually need the grace of God to come to them uniquely in this season, to say something specific to them, capture their attention, get them around people whose lives can bolster their faith and cause them to look up again. If that's what you're going through at seasons of your life, then you shouldn't live there and always be there. But if those things occur in certain seasons of your life, then you're living the Christian life. And that's why you need books like Hebrews to help us. Look what it says here in Hebrews chapter 6. Actually, it's back up to verse 9. It says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for His sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire... Each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If you want to understand the goal of this writer and inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's the goal. And he states it in several places throughout Hebrews. He wants these elements to be present in the life of a believer who's laid hold of the truth of God. And I put in your outline just a couple of quick admonitions to maybe test ourselves in how much we're needing the message of this book. The goal in this book is to, is to get us to a place of showing earnestness rather than sluggishness. When you look at your life and just test your life for a moment before we get into the strategy that we're going to study this week. Are you in a place where your faith is sluggish? Just kind of going through the motions. You know, there, there's not a, a zip and a zeal. When you come in at a time of worship that we had this morning, maybe for prayer, maybe you can't put your finger on a time and a season of real intense prayer in your life, and you're just overlooking that, and you're trying to live Christianity without really calling out to God and being an intercessor for yourself and for others. Well, that, that's sluggishness. Maybe this morning as we worship God this morning, uh, you, you kind of sang, but... Your heart didn't get poured out in passion. Whether it's opportunities to advance the gospel, whether it's, uh, I appreciate the word that was given this morning. Maybe there's some folks here, you've been, you've been praying for people at work, and you've been intimidated about sharing something with them, and that step of faith has just been lacking. Oh, that's sluggishness. Let's just analyze that correctly. You know, whether we're involved in serving through Operation Replant or, or serving the care team, and reaching out into our community and, and making a dent in the, the city for the sake of the gospel. Now, how aggressive are we in these things, right? You know when you're aggressive, right? You know when you cut through traffic to get home because the Saints game is starting at a certain point. Or you, you know when you live aggressively, you cancel all things because that's important. Well, does that find its way into the way in which we're living? Because if it doesn't, then our, our faith has become sluggish. And the admonition in this book is, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. Each one. Not the superstars, 
Not the ones who have been saved and walk on water because there's something unique about their life that just gives them special privilege to be able to walk out Christianity different than the average Christian. The normal Christian is in this passage. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Full assurance. Now, you want to test, you want to do one of those finger prick tests to see what your faith is like? We'll, we'll find, as a matter of fact, we did a whole retreat on this a couple years ago, Measured by Joy. Remember that retreat? If you want to find out what your faith is like, do a little life prick to see how much joy is in your life. How much hope is in your life? Because I guarantee you, if you can't find a whole lot of hope and joy, if you're not looking through the lens of God's about to do something, I'm at peace right now because I know God's at work, if you're living instead in the realm of, of fear and anxiety, or if you're living in the realm of frustration, you're frustrated about things and angry, well, it's because you don't see hope, do you? You get frustrated because I just, there's just no way this is going to change. I'm just, I'm just so fed up with this. You become angry. It's because you don't see that there's a God who's actively involved that you can expect He's going to actually touch tomorrow and the next day and the next month. And so if hope is lacking, then faith is lacking. And faith needs to be built back up. And he goes on and he says, So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And now probably in the next couple of weeks we're going to talk one more time out of this, this book about the promises that God has made and the reality that there's a lot of Christians who don't inherit them. God has made so many promises in our lives. And yet the Bible holds out the reality that those promises can profit us nothing. They'd be great on the table of God, but they're not in our lives. And we're not holding out for them and believing for them in our lives. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next couple of weeks. But, you know, there's, there's something in this past part of, of, of verse 12 being imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit promises. Sometimes promises are on the other side of a field that's, that's involves faith and patience. That you don't realize, and I know I don't realize, just how impatient of a people we are. I mean, we live in an instant world. In, in our technology, I mean... Computers can't operate fast enough for us, can they? Right? Those of you that are old enough, do you remember when there were no computers? There was no such thing as a laptop. You actually added things in your head. Do you remember these days? That, that lifestyle engendered in us a sense that everything is an instant. You just don't get everything instantly. Be very aware. This is one of those secondhand smoke issues for us. We're getting this in us. We're impatient and it should have happened yesterday. And when you come to the Bible, God doesn't do things that way. God says, you want to inherit promises? Well, then sign on for faith, believing things you don't see, and you don't even see how they can happen, and patience. You want to do an interesting study? Just, just sit down with the concordance and find the word patience and, and the word endurance. And see how often the Bible talks about it. It's all over the place. And so the reality for us... Uh, we need to be training for a marathon here and not a sprint. 
we're in this thing to run a long way. And so this message today becomes critical for us for faith that's going to run and 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 stay in the race and keep running when we've run and run and run and we're still not there yet and we still don't see the promises coming to fruition yet, but by faith and patience, we're going to inherit them and they're going to become ours. Well, today I want to study the strategic strengthening of faith through knowledge of God's covenant. God is a covenant God. And so the the title today is Faith in a Covenant God. And if you study Hebrews, you find out covenant is a big deal in the letter of the Hebrews. It gets explained, it gets highlighted, and it's critical that our faith needs to be strengthened by an understanding of covenant. What is it for God to be in covenant with us? And what implications does that have for my life and how I'm living it and what I can expect for the future? Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, let me I just put verse 16 in your outline. Let me back up a little bit for some context in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Listen to this verse carefully. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, let's let's live in this statement just for a moment. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, I want you to note the differentiation that is intentionally in this statement because it has a lot to do with whether you and I will actually ever benefit from understanding the covenant love of God. Now, this statement is a a particular challenge to us. It's a challenge to us in an American mindset that we bring to the Bible. Uh, we, We live in a democratic society. We live in the land of what it is to be fair uh, we, we don't have much of a concept of what it is to live in a kingdom where a king reigns. And so the, some of the concepts are a little bit challenging for us to get here. But this verse starts off, and in the context of it, and the whole book is about encouraging faith in us. So this is actually a phrase that's intended to build faith in us. It's supposed to have a good effect on our lives. Surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And there's something in us, because this, this, this one little phrase here is flirting with something called the doctrine of election. It's flirting with an element of God that God does what God wants to do for the reasons that God has to do it. Period. Now, that's a good thing. And if you've not been taught well the doctrine of election, even me using that term may, may be freaking you out right now. Uh, when you come to this verse... Rather than us looking at it and saying, oh, this is what the American mindset does. We don't look at this and go, this is great news. God gives unique help to the offspring of Abraham. Oh, this is excellent. No, no, no. That's not what the American mindset does. The American mindset back up and goes, wait a minute. You can't do that. You don't give help to the angels? That's not right. You, You can't exclude them. And not only that... Not just the angels, 
But this is limited to the offspring of Abraham. What about all the rest of humanity that is not the offspring of Abraham? Wait a minute, God. You, that's not right. I'm going to join a class action suit against you. You, you. you can't do that. I mean, that's violating some kind of equal opportunity law that somewhere you've got to treat everybody exactly the same way. See, this is in us. And we bring it before God. This is in us. And we glamorize it. We make it sound like it's really a noble idea. Can, can we all humble ourselves for a moment? Let's, let's do the little dog between the tail thing. Humble ourselves before God for a moment. This God is holy, righteous, pure, true, just. He never does anything wrong. He is incapable. He is perfect. So if God says, I give help to the offspring of Abraham and I do not give it to the angels and I do not give it to those who are not the offspring of Abraham, bow before him and do not stand up and say, what, you, what, what do you think you're doing? Listen, he's doing what is perfect to do in doing that. But I don't understand it. Get in line behind me. I don't either. But just because I don't understand it, I mean, I have a hard time going back and helping my kids with, you know, are you smarter than a fifth grader? How many of you guys are doing well with that program? <laughs> right? Anybody make it to the million dollar question yet? That's humbling, isn't it? <laughs> well, if I'm not smarter than a fifth grader, I know I'm not smarter than God. So if God does it this way and he intends for it to be an encouragement, don't turn it into a class action suit against him. But you do need to embrace something here. There is a differentiation in God. He has the right to do it, and he does it. And before we get uncomfortable with it, can we just all know that we've always agreed with that? We've just never really thought it through? The nation of Israel. Is everybody okay? Do you want to join a class action suit with all the other nations who don't get the benefits that Israel gets? I mean, do you realize? God doesn't do with all the other nations what he does with the nation of Israel. He singles them out. And He treats them especially uniquely different. He promises them things. Other nations can't come along and just and, and say, uh, you know, uh, the Moabites and the Amalekites have hired an attorney and God, you know, we're going to see you in court, pal. You can't treat Israel that way and not treat us that way. Where are our prophets? Where's the covenant with us? Where are the promises to us? You didn't make those to us. Well, he's God in the heavens and he does what he pleases and he does what's right. It's right for God to do this. When you get even in the nation of Israel, not everybody has equal access to God. God tells the descendants of Aaron that they're going to be priests and them alone will be priests. He tells the Levites that you're going to have an assisting role in the priesthood. And he makes no room for anybody else to do that. And he actually responds violently against those who cross the line. Remember the day that the ark was being brought back from its captivity in the Philistines to the Philistines? They loaded it on a cart, which they shouldn't have done. It should have been carried by Levites. And it was wobbling along, and all of a sudden it began to fall. And a man named Uzzah, who was not a Levite, had a noble intention. Good intended. The ark was about to flip over on its side. He put his hand out to stop it, and he was killed instantly. What about King Uzziah? He was a king. And, and the priest had the role of offering incense. God had told the priest, you have the right to come before me and offer incense. King Uzziah got proud and said, I'm the king. Certainly if these priests can do it, I can do it. And he loaded up a, an incense 
began to burn that before God, and God struck him with leprosy. And he was right to do it. See, there's differentiation in God. There's huge differentiation in here when God says, I don't give help to the angels. If you ever want to really consider and ponder the doctrine of election, stop for a moment and think. Um, Should the, the angels who rebelled against God, the demons who fell, they fell, right? So we hold hands with them. They rebelled and fell. We rebelled and fell. So there's a a real similarity here between the angels and us in our actions against God's decree. Do the angels have this conversation going on? Hey, look, guys, I'm okay. You're okay. Because God is love. You know, this is all going to come out in the end. Everybody goes to heaven. It's just the way it is. God is love. He would never. Can the demons have that conversation? They can't, can they? Because nowhere in the Bible does God reveal any form of redemption for the angels. The angels fell and God left them fallen. You see, God retains the the right, and he does this right, to have mercy on whom I have mercy. And so... This highlights something for us. There's a negative element of this that is going to highlight for us a positive element for us who are in relationship with God. And that's why this verse sounds the way it does. It is highlighting the fact that you are receiving a unique privilege from God. He doesn't give aid and help to the angels, but he does to the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, if you are the offspring of Abraham, you have great reason to be encouraged. This God has come to you and he's offered you a special care and special promises and and he will be something in your life. And that's the reason for the encouragement. But if you don't have room for differentiation, you don't have room for you to be treated any differently than anybody else and anything else that's ever fallen. And you'll just expect God to do with you whatever, whatever he does with everything else that's fallen. Well, that's not true. He will treat you differently. Well, why is that? What is the difference here? Why did the offspring of Abraham get something different from God? Well, the answer is because God has made a covenant with Abraham. And we need to understand the covenant so we can understand the hope that it brings to us. Now turn over to Hebrews 6. Just after that encouragement, strengthening faith that we read a few moments ago, and not being sluggish, but being earnest and having hope, we come across this passage that highlights this relationship to Abraham. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Are you not... And somebody tries to convince you that they really are telling you the truth, and they say, Man, I swear to God. Right? That's where that comes from. You appeal to the highest name you can possibly appeal to and say, I'm telling you the truth. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We, 
who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, now remember, as we sort through the details of this passage, this, this passage is intended to build faith that will endure. That's what it's after. That's the strategy of this. That does so by highlighting something that God has done. And to convince us, it says this is out to convince the heirs of something and to give us hope. And that hope is based in this little phrase, verse 17. God desired to show the unchangeable character of his purpose. Hold on to that. God desired to show the unchangeable character of his purpose. God has decided to do something that will not and cannot be changed. It is unchangeable. How often are we doubting whether God can actually pull off, pulling our bacon out of the fire? God's purpose is unchangeable. It cannot be changed. Now, if I'm thinking here, I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, yeah, that works at a certain level, but you don't understand the way I live and my faith and my issues and my sin and the people in my life. And and we load up the other side of the scale to try and create an argument against this in our experience. Well, it might help us if we would understand some of the nature of this oath that God has talked about when he made this promise. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham... Well, what what happened when God made this promise? Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And let's, let's recap for a moment and let's get some mileage out of understanding this covenant promise that God made to Abraham and the nature of it. And who was Abraham? Abraham, he's a hero, right? We look back on Abraham. He's one of the few names in the Old Testament that just jumps out at us. His name is there. He's done incredible things. Well, that was not always the case. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, God changed his name to Abraham, but at this point his name is Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who honor, or dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the promise that God makes to Abraham. Now, I put a couple of verses in here so that you could get a little bit better picture of who is this guy, Abram. There's something really special about him that he gets promises. There's something inherent in him because I know we would probably like to dismiss ourselves from actually believing that God has made us promises, because, well, I'm just Keith Collins. I'm not Abraham. Well, I read this, I find out Abraham was at least as bad as I am. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. God just appeared to Abraham. God comes to him and just appears to him. Joshua 24, verse 2. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Who was this man, Abram, when God came to him? Well, he was not a leading candidate in God-glorifying behavior. He was an idol worshiper. More than likely, he worshipped the moon god, which was common in that place, which is actually why Islam has a little crescent in it, whether they realize that or not. This guy's an idol worshiper. Now, now, can you, can you hold on to the thought of differentiation here? Abram lives in a place called Ur. So, I don't know, maybe he's, he could have lived in a high-rise building or maybe he lived in the suburbs of Ur. But he has an address in Ur. And next door to him is, is Bob and Fred and whoever. And God shows up to Abram and reveals himself to Abram. And makes Abram promises. Now, carefully, I put these two questions in here. What is the origin of this plan? Does it originate in Abram? Does Abram been asking God to do this? Does he come up with the idea? God, I have a great idea. Why don't you, why don't you make my name great? Bless me and bless all my descendants after me. Let the whole earth be affected by the blessing on my life. No, this guy's he's not even saying anything to God. He's staring at the moon. And worshiping a false god. And God comes to him and reveals himself to him and makes promises to him. Now, can you, can you see in heaven there's a God who has a plan and he's going to get it done? You've got to start with that. I'm going to fulfill my plan. I've got a plan. I'm, gonna, I'm bringing this plan to earth. I'm not, Abram, you're the man. Not because Abram deserves to be the man, but because God just chose. Now, if you want to... Get on with the ACLU lawsuit against God here. Well, why didn't God choose Bob and Fred who live next door? Doesn't God have to choose Bob and Fred who live next door? I mean, if you're going to show up in Ur, God, aren't, aren't you under an obligation to reveal yourself to everybody in Ur this way? And you do realize that doesn't happen. Right? I know this is uncomfortable stuff, but I, I, sometimes I just got to get you to stare in the Bible and let the Bible be the Bible. The reality is, the only guy in Ur who got a visit like this was Abram. Because God had a purpose, and it was a perfect way of doing it, and that's how he chose to do it. And he reveals himself to Abram. Now, what's the basis for this plan being fulfilled? Do you hear anything in this first few verses here that says, Abram, now listen, this is like a 90-day probation now, okay? I want to do some great stuff, but if you, if you get out of line here, it's over. Do you hear any of that language in here? What you hear is you hear God saying, I will do this. I will make you a great nation. I'm going to do this. This is all about God and his purpose. And Abram is simply drawn into that purpose. And God is going to do this. Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 15. When we read over in, in Hebrews, we find that God swore by himself. Since he could swear by no one greater... He swore by himself. He put his own name on the line. 
because there was no one greater he could swear by. He couldn't appeal to somebody greater than him and say, listen, Abraham, I'm serious. I swear to, well, I am God. Uh, you know, he, he didn't have anything available higher than him to convince him. But it's interesting what God did do in expressing this covenant to Abram. Verse 1 of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a, in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I actually think the translation that's a little more accurate is, I am your shield and your great reward. God actually is Abram's reward. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God. Now, now some years have passed here. I want to say about 20 years or so have passed since Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. So this promise that you're going to have these descendants in a great nation and Abram is visiting this and doesn't have any children here. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This, this has been probably a rough number of years. And here's a man who is, is looking at the realities of his life. These things aren't happening, but God, you're promising. God, how will I know? How will I know this is going to happen? He said to him, verse 9, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, I want to highlight something. Because what Hebrews is picking up and is saying, hey, the reason for you to not be sluggish, the reason for you to go on and lay hold of the promises that God has made is found in what God's going to do to Abram's offspring. And he highlights how did that become a special issue by taking us into the promises God made to Abram and that God swore by himself when he made these promises. 
In other words, God presented a fail-proof plan when he made this covenant with Abram. And the, and the way he did it was taking Abram, if you will, out of the deal and only making him the benefactor of the deal. And what you see in this, this is, and this is an amazing text, the fact that the God of the universe is having animals cut open is an amazing revelation of the heart of God. Abram understands cutting covenant. He understands what that means. He's grown up in a time where that's common. When people enter into an agreement and there's this promise that's made with each other, it was a common thing for them to cut an animal in half. They literally would divide it in half and, and separate it. And they would walk through it actually in a figure eight and they would promise each other certain commitments in this pledge. And what they were saying when they cut the animal and passed through that animal, they would declare a curse on themselves if they fail to fulfill their promise. Be it done to me as was done today to this animal, should I ever fail you in this. And they would both walk through the pieces and pledge to one another their lives and their faithfulness. Now, now can you get a hold of this? The God of the universe is about to stoop to the level of what Abraham understands. Isn't it just enough the God of the universe said he would do it? Abram, shut your mouth. I said I would do it. Oh, but Lord, how will I know? Just evaporate him right there on the spot. But God doesn't do that. Isn't this an amazing condescension of God? That he says, all right, you'll get this, Abram. Go get me some animals. Let's kill them. But now what's interesting and what's critical to see here is who does and who does not walk through the pieces. Abram, what is Abram's contribution into this covenant? He slept through it. <laughs> kind of like church, isn't it? <laughs> he slept while God walked through the pieces. And do you understand the fatal flaw that would have been here had God walked through the pieces and then Abram walked through the pieces? The covenant would have, would have only been as good as the weakest link. And it would have been destined for failure, wouldn't it? Abram would not have been able to uphold his end of the covenant. So God puts him to sleep. And God alone passes through the covenant. Now who is the covenant dependent upon? It's dependent completely on God. God swore by himself. So you have a guarantee here. This, this is a rich, rich picture of the, the power of that God establishes in a covenant that he assures it will get accomplished because I didn't put human weakness and sin in the covenant with me. I entered into covenant all myself. And it's reflecting the same heart that God comes and finds Abram and says, I will do this, Abram. I will do this. And you happen to be the guy I'm going to do it through. Now, move, move to the new covenant with me for a moment. Because Abraham's covenant foreshadows the new covenant. It is the closest thing we get to the covenant that's made in the new covenant. Now, in the new covenant, you have another interesting dynamic here. You have God entering into covenant with who? And this is very important. God is entering, God the Father is going to enter into covenant with the Son of Man. 
who is the Son of God. And what he, what he doesn't do is you don't have a God who says, okay, each one of you individually, let's come up and make covenant. You come up next, and I'll make covenant with you. And you come up next, and I'll make covenant with you. God makes one new covenant, and he makes it with his Son. Now, here's what's so important. When God made a covenant with Abraham, everyone in Abraham's offspring were going to be affected by the deal God made with Abraham. Everybody who would come after him would be affected. If you will, in the terminology throughout Scripture, is Abraham's offspring was in Abraham. It was in him, right? In his loins, literally, but represented in Abraham. So when God makes a promise to Abraham, that promise is for all of his descendants because they are in Abraham. If you look in Scripture, Exodus 2, i put this in your outline, verse 23. Why does God come rescue the Israelites when they are in bondage in Egypt? What is it that prompts God to go do that? Verse 23 of Exodus 2 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Why does God go and pull an entire nation out of slavery? Because he remembered that he made a promise to Abraham and his offspring. And he treats Abraham... God, Remember, God doesn't give help to the angels, but he does give help to the offspring of Abraham. Listen, I don't know how many other nations were enslaved at this time. Probably lots of them. Slavery was pretty common. But God hears uniquely His people that He has a covenant relationship with. And the reason He comes and rescues them out of slavery is because He's made a covenant with Abraham. Isn't that incredible news? If you and I ever find ourselves in slavery, that the God who made a deal long before you and I ever drew a breath is coming after us. Look at 2 Kings 13, verse 22. Now, Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. So do you, do you see, when God made a covenant arrangement with Abraham... It set everybody up in his offspring to be treated uniquely by God. God would come to their aid. God would bring them help. God helps the offspring of Abraham. Why? Because God went and found some nobody idol worshiper and pulled him out of his idolatry and said, I will fulfill my purpose in your life and in your descendants. And God's faithful to his promises. Now, in the New Covenant, Jesus Christ is the Abrahamic figure. But he is, he, is the, he is the party to a better covenant. If you read the rest of Hebrews, and we can't get into all this today, but you'll find the terminology is a better covenant. A better covenant because it is, these others were warm-up covenants to leading up to this one. The new covenant was the covenant of all covenants to ever occur. And it was between a perfect God and his perfect son. And that son happened to take on flesh so that he would be a man. So that when he stood, and if you will, shook hands with a deal with God, he did so as a man. 
it's, it's very important that Jesus Christ was actually a man. Because in being a man, he represents all of the men who would be in him. And so when Jesus shakes the hand of God, if you will, sheds his blood and enters into a covenant with God the Father, all those who are in him now are in covenant with God. This is not an individual deal. This is not as though you've got to go out and live your life the best you can, store up brownie points, accumulate religious activity, and then maybe God will shake hands with you. No, what you need to do is make sure you're in Christ so that the deal that he made with God becomes your deal. That's the critical issue. Now, if, if it's true that God is in covenant with his son, somebody help me here, can this covenant ever be broken? Is there any failure that's possible in this? See, in a sense, God has again sworn by himself. When he alone passed through the pieces with Abraham, it was all conditioned on him. Well, the only parties in this new covenant are God and the Son of God. Do you ever think one of these parties could ever fail? Then can the covenant, the new covenant, can it ever fail? No. Well, can you ever fail in the covenant? Can you ever be somehow disappointed in your particular inheritance in the covenant. See, if you understand this language of the Bible of Jesus, who is the head of the covenant, all those who are in him are in covenant with God. You understand why Romans chapter 8, which, which follows after lengthy explanation of those who are in Adam and those who are now in Christ, you follow all these terminologies, leads up to a point where Romans 8 can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand why? Because I am in Christ who made covenant with God. The only way to condemn me is to condemn the Son of God. And that can't happen, can it? So there is therefore now no condemnation for me because I'm in a covenant with God that was made by Jesus Christ on my behalf and was received by faith the same way Abraham received all that God did in covenant, simply by faith. That's the new covenant. That's what we have with, with God. That's shouting words. You can shout, right? <laughs> now, go, now go, go back with me to Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews 6, verse... 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Why did God do all that that we just rehearsed? Why did we walk back through Abraham's covenant? Why, why has God made covenants in the past? It is for us. It is to show even more convincingly. It is the fact of the reality that you and I need to be convinced sometimes that God will be faithful to us. God will honor his promises. God will remain in fellowship with us. God will accomplish his purpose in our lives. And we need to be convinced of that. So he even more convincingly showed the unchangeableness of this covenant agreement. It cannot change. And therefore, we have reason for great confidence Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We are the heirs. And God did these things so the heirs would be able to look at it and go, wow, God is serious about fulfilling his purpose in my life. He is serious about this. And we get that by studying the word and seeing it here. Put this statement in your outline. God has done something that was designed to give us hope like an anchor in our life that could not fail. Now, if you're, you're not a, a seaman, you don't really appreciate an anchor, and it's, it's the strategic importance of what it is. But if you find yourself in a boat that can be moved by the waves and the wind kicks up and you start moving, if you don't have an anchor that will hold you in place, that water will move you under the rocks. And eventually you're going to be slammed against the coastline and your boat will be destroyed and you'll be in the water. So for somebody who understood the danger of not being able to hold steady in the midst of the gale and the force and the power of things going on around you, in our life, the imagery there is of in the midst of you and I facing the forces of life, difficulties, suffering, that we have an anchor that maintains our hope and that anchor is the covenant that we have with God through His Son. That God is intentional and His purposes are unchanging. Well, uh, well, you haven't seen the weather forecast in my life. It doesn't matter. The weather doesn't change God. He is still going to be God. He is still going to be faithful to what He promised and the covenant that He made with us who are in His Son. And that's what this verse is trying to convince me of. Now, let me back us into some application thought. Right now, in your life, is God for you? Are you living your life thinking, God's favor will be on my life tomorrow? Now, don't play church with me, okay? You got your checkbook with you? You concerned about how you're going to pay the bills at the end of the month? You got a relationship that's not going right? Not sure that's going to work out well? You have challenges with your family, with your children? Concerned about the future for them? Do you expect God to be favorable to you? in those areas of your life? Expect Him? So I'm, I'm concerned that our reasons for expecting God to do this or do anything like that in our lives are too weak and they're, they're biblically a little bit uninformed. We, can't, we might expect it, but unfortunately, I think we expect it for the same reasons that the world expects it. Well, you know, sure, God is, God is good and He doesn't want anything bad to happen to anyone. Yeah, so yeah, I guess I suppose I think God's probably favorably disposed to me. Or, or God is love. How do, you, how do you give that answer and then quote Hebrews 2, verse 16? That God does not give help to the angels. But He does to the offspring of Abraham. See, it's the world that stands around and just takes these generic ideas about God and throws them around in their lives and says, well, I, I believe in a good God and, and I just think He's going to do good, you know. Uh, oh, really? Isn't God a good God and the demons are going to suffer forever in hell? Isn't that true? 
Isn't God love and yet they will not be redeemed? Isn't that true? See, now the Bible actually takes that concept and highlights the fact that, but I have chosen mercy for you. If you are the offspring of Abraham, I have chosen a different way of relating to you. Oh, that messes with my American thoughts. God's got to be fair. Listen, when you receive the grace of God, can you jump up and down and say, thank you, God, that you are not fair. Thank you that you are not fair. Thank you for not giving me what I deserve. Thank you for not finding in me the reasons for your response. Thank you that mysteriously somehow there's a reason in you that you respond to me the way you do. Abram never would have got a deal with God being an idol worshiper if it weren't for something in God that sought him out and blessed him and promised him. And there's a little word here, and I want to tweak it out for a second. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a word for covenant love. It's translated in a number of different ways. Loving kindness. It's translated mercy. It's translated steadfast love. And it has as its nature an unfailing persistence. Well, this is the covenant love that God has given us. It is what David knew when he, when he was with God and he began to know the character of God. And he began to understand this, this God who had made covenant with Abraham and what he was going to be like. And it, it is the word that David pens in Psalm 23 when he says, Surely, goodness, and some versions say mercy, some say loving kindness, will follow me all the days of my life. The word there is surely goodness and hesed will follow me all the days of my life. Now, give me just five minutes here to walk you through how David could say that. Back up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. David knew something about the character of God. Listen to this. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll start reading in verse 8. We're going to listen to God making promises, God making covenant with David. Verse 8 says, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and who who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my hesed... My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne 
shall be established forever. This is God making a covenant promise to David of faithfulness. And and you hear the same thing, the same language. I will do this. I will do this. This will happen. That will happen. And it's not based on whether David's going to do it all right. We all know David didn't do it all right. This guy's an adulterer and a murderer and a liar. His own children raise themselves up against him and seek to steal the, the, the kingdom away from him. This guy had some severe home life problems. He may be able to shed some severe blood out on the battlefield, and he was a great dynamic king and leader, but his home life stunk. And God was faithful to himself in his promises. Not that David deserved it. But what David knew of God was he was an undeserving individual that God ran hard after and made his life something. God pursued me and made my life something. And now I want you to see how this gets fleshed out. In just a moment, we're going to get ready for communion. Some of the men who are getting, going to be helping out if you'd be prepared in just a minute. But from 2 Samuel 7, David goes to battle. God gives him favor. He begins to, he, well, he's been winning and fighting wars, but he's, he's defeating the Philistines next. And then we have this strange story here, and I think it's significant that it follows after the, the covenant God makes with David in chapter 7, chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? that I may show him hesed, kindness, for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the hesed of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you hesed, kindness, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. And the next few verses just again highlights David blessing Mephibosheth. Now, what I want you to see in this is David actually models for us what the covenant love of God is like. David has a heart to find and seek out a young boy, he's probably a young man here, named Mephibosheth who was of the household of Saul. Now, if you know anything about David and Saul, you know that there was a little bit of a war going on between these households. And if you were in Saul's household, you were constantly being poisoned against David. So Mephibosheth, when Saul the king dies in battle, 
the servant grabs up this little boy, puts him on his shoulders, and begins to run out of the building in fear. Probably in fear that David won't be long before he comes to destroy this household. Because he's the, he's, the next, he's the anointed king, and Saul is now dead, and we are of Saul's household. So the impression is, run for your life. And in running, she trips and falls, and Mephibosheth falls, and he becomes crippled for the rest of his life. And he hides out in some desert town called Lodi Bar and lives this miserable existence. Until one day... Chariots pull up, knock on the door. You can imagine what he's thinking. I'm found. I'm, I'm a dead man. David's found me. They take him back to the king. And he comes before the king. You can see the humility in him. He's thinking, I'm as good as dead. And David turns around and lavishes grace on him and makes him promises. He says, I'm going to give you all the inheritance, all the things that belong to your father. I give them to you. This guy's head's got to be spinning. What on earth are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Why did David do that to a boy named Mephibosheth? Well, if you follow the story, in some ways it wasn't because of Mephibosheth. It was because of Jonathan. First Samuel chapter 20. Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, and David enter into a covenant with each other. In verse 14, Jonathan says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love that has said of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Do you understand why Mephibosheth is benefiting in this moment? Because of a covenant that he knew nothing about. David had made a covenant with Jonathan, his father, and had pledged his covenant love, his faithfulness and kindness not only to Jonathan, but to all his descendants. And Mephibosheth is now receiving the benefit of that. See, when, when, God, when God relates to you and me, see, we're the Mephibosheth. We're the ones asking the question, why would you relate to me with kindness? I'm as good as a dead dog. I've sinned against you. I've been rebellious against you. I'm of the wrong family. God, why would you be kind to me for the sake of Jesus? I've come and I've found you and I've sought you out. I've stored up blessing and I want to heap blessing on your life. I want to provide for you. I want to care for you. I want to show you loving kindness like you've never known. See, this is the nature of the covenant love of God that comes to us and finds us where we are. And, and this is the anchor that holds. This is the reason why I have hope. Now listen, let this bleed into the areas of your life right now where you're tempted not to be full of hope and 
full of faith. You have a God who runs after people like Abram and David. He runs after them to make covenant with them and to make promises to them so that he will fulfill those promises and show himself full of mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And the good news is, if you're in Christ, all those promises are yours. Not because any of us deserve them. Because that's how God loves. He loves His Son. And all who are in His Son receive the covenant promises and benefits that God gives to His Son. They come to us now. I hope what God will do in reminding us of this is strengthen faith that's become sluggish, lacking, given up, not sure. Listen, you and I have a reason today. We have a reason today to believe something about what God's about to do. It's not that I deserve it. It's not that you deserve it. It's not on our track record. It's because God has chosen mercy for our lives. He has chosen has said. God has sought out. Listen, the same God who will spill His fury and His wrath as a display of His perfection and His holiness is going to spill His hesed and His kindness as a display of Himself as well. And He has chosen to do that to the offspring of Abraham, to those who are in Christ. So I have reason beyond what the world has, better than their reason, better than some misguided idea from the devils, God is for me in a way that is uniquely covenantal. Now today what I'd like us to do in closing is I'd like for us to celebrate communion. If the men who are going to, whoever, and ladies perhaps who have been asked to help, if you wouldn't mind coming up at this time. And let me, let me make this statement as, as they take their position here. It's always been a concern for us that, that communion would not lose its meaning. Most of the folks here in, in this auditorium grew up like I did. You grew up Catholic. You grew up as a normal, every week activity of the Catholic Mass was communion. And if you were anything like I was, the meaning of that was both blurred by inappropriate doctrine as well as misplaced by a lack of attention being correctly drawn to it. And that is not what we want to take the risk of doing. So um, we take opportunities like these that offer us a significant view of what is this that we're about to partake of. Well, it, it is a covenant meal. That's where communion gets its origins. It is a covenant meal. It is a meal of remembrance. The way in which Passover remembered what God had done. And they were to pause. And as they ate, each thing meant something to them. And they remembered every year the faithfulness of God to deal with them a certain way and what the Passover meant. Well, you and I are called this morning to actually remember, and I've said this before, if all you do is eat and drink and your mind and your heart doesn't remember, then you have not celebrated communion. Communion is not so much about the emblems as much as the emblems help us to think a certain way about His broken body about His blood that established a new and everlasting covenant 
that gives me hope to realize no matter what dark cloud is over my life today, there's a God who is intentional about being set toward me. Tomorrow, next week, for the rest of my life. Let's make sure we're remembering this while we take communion.